0: Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. We look at the career of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was remembered at the court she served on for 27 years for her brilliance and vision. Chief Justice John Roberts called Ginsburg a rock star who found her stage in our courtroom.
1: Her 483 majority, concurring, and dissenting opinions will steer the court for decades. They are written with the unaffected grace of precision.
0: Justice Ginsburg was a trailblazer for women's rights, the second female justice on the Supreme Court, and a cultural icon. She built a record on the court as one of the most liberal members. It was her strong dissents from rulings that cut back on voting rights and affirmative action that won her the nickname Notorious RBG, and she became a cultural icon, a rock star in her 80s. My guest is Leah Littman, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan Law School. Explain why Justice Ginsburg is repeatedly called a trailblazer for women's rights.
1: Sure. So her career, before she ever made her way onto the federal court, really pioneered the modern law of sex equality. As a litigator, she advanced theories that the Constitution prohibited the government from discriminating on the basis of sex. And it was in cases that she argued or briefed that the court first endorsed that very proposition. In two early cases, she got the court to agree that the Constitution prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex where laws actually disadvantaged men. And later on, she would ask the court to apply that same principle to laws that disadvantaged women, her theory being that any discrimination on the basis of sex was bad for the country and bad for men and women as a whole. In later cases, she also laid out a theory of reproductive justice, under which women should have control of their reproductive lives. But as with her pioneering work on sex equality, she first advanced that theory in cases where the government sought to prevent women from having children, either through eugenics, forcible sterilization laws, or laws that required women in order to continue on in their jobs to have an abortion. And so she was a very savvy litigator and lawyerly strategist before she ever got to the court.
0: So did she accomplish most of her victories for women before she got on the court then?
1: So some of her victories were before she got on the court, but she certainly advanced the law of sex equality once she got on the court as well. In her extremely important decision in the United States versus Virginia, she invalidated Virginia's attempt to exclude women from being admitted to the Virginia Military Institute, the state's premier academy for training military officers. And in that decision, she said states must show and the federal government must show an exceedingly persuasive justification before they discriminate against women. And so I think she did advance the principles of sex equality and prohibitions on sex discrimination after she got on the court, but she really founded the modern law of sex equality as a litigator. She also
0: talked about when she was the only woman on the court that she served in the role of sort of of law professor because she had to explain to her male colleagues how, how things worked as far as women were concerned, what their concerns would be.
1: Yes, that's right. So in one case involving a school strip search of a 13-year-old girl, she famously told a reporter when discussing the case that none of my colleagues have been 13-year-old girls. This was a case that the court heard after Justice O'Connor had retired. And so she really did view her role as a spokeswoman for women and women's equality and women's issues on the court.
0: When uh, Justice John Paul Stevens retired, she became the leader of the so-called liberal bloc of the court. Tell us about her accomplishments
1: as leader of the liberal bloc. So she was on the left of the court during the Rehnquist and the Roberts court eras, which means many of her most famous decisions came in defense. So, As the leader of the liberal bloc of the court, she authored the dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, in which the court, the conservative majority, invalidated the crown jewel of the civil rights movement, the preclearance regime of the Voting Rights Act. And it was in that decision that she famously said that the court, in invalidating the Voting Rights Act on the ground that black voting had increased since the passage of voting rights act was like throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And it was that line and that dissent that really launched the notorious RBG meme in popular culture. She also had famous dissents in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, where the court upheld the federal partial birth abortion act. And it was really as a dissenter that she made her name, her dissent in a famous fair pay case led better, led Congress to amend the law to allow women to more easily sue to recover for pay discrimination. So she really made her name on the court as a dissenter, although she did have some significant majority opinions like United States versus Virginia.
0: It seems from the statements that many of the justices have made that she had friendships with many of her colleagues.
1: I think that the justices try to get along with one another, and I think Justice Ginsburg in particular really prided herself on a kind of professionalism where she could disagree with her colleagues but still maintain cordial relationships with them. In the last few years, when the justices were leaving the bench, it would be Justice Thomas who would help her walk off the bench and extend his arm to her, and she had warm relationships with several of her colleagues, um, as the statements make clear, as you know.
0: Going back to her dissents for a moment, her longtime friend, Justice Scalia, was well known for his dissents, and she was well known for hers.
1: What was similar or dissimilar about them? I think that they were similar and that they often had memorable lines. But Justice Scalia's dissent often went a bit further in accusing the side with which he was disagreeing of engaging in politics or being illegitimate. And I think burning more things to the ground than Justice Ginsburg ever did in dissent. And it remains to be seen whether her dissent will galvanize the Americans who want to honor her legacy and believe in her, to galvanize them to go to the polls to preserve her legacy in the same way that voters responded to Justice Scalia's passing by going to the polls to elect President Trump to replace his successor.
0: So speaking of her legacy, how significant would it be if Donald Trump is allowed to replace her
1: with a conservative jurist? I think it would greatly alter the future of the court and really substantially undo significant portions of Justice Ginsburg's legacy. Um, It would alter the direction of the court because it means that the chief justice would no longer be the median justice on the court, So he would no longer be the justice whose vote was necessary in order to garner a majority. Instead, that person would be someone like Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh or whoever the new nominee is. And that will have profound implications in a wide range of areas, many of which are essential to Justice Ginsburg's legacy. It will certainly have implications in the field of reproductive justice. So thinking about contraception access and whether employers must extend health insurance coverage to women for contraception access, it will also affect abortion. Just last term, the Supreme Court upheld by a narrow majority. Um, their earlier decision in Whole Woman's Health vs. Hellerstedt, which invalidated an admitting privileges requirement for abortion providers. With a replacement for Justice Ginsburg on the court, that decision would have gone the other way and would have greenlighted even more expansive and restrictive regulations on abortion. So we are likely to see several changes rather quickly if and when a replacement is confirmed and that will have really significant effects for the next several decades. The approval of the Supreme Court was
0: at its highest level in a decade in August, about 58%, and included both Republicans and Democrats approving of the job the Supreme Court did. Do you suppose that part of that is that Roberts used his power to moderate the court's decisions and it didn't seem like the court was either
1: left or right? Yes, I absolutely think that's true. I mean, most of the headlines at the end of the term were about how the court managed to stay above politics and was nonpartisan, unlike the other branches of the federal government. And I think that those headlines and the few decisions where the chief justice joined the liberals and the outcome, bottom lines of the cases really affected public perceptions of the court. And so they enjoyed much greater public positive perception than arguably they should have.
0: Chief Justice Roberts always likes to talk about the independence of the judiciary, that they're not political, judges are above that. But will this, in the eyes of the public at least, will the fight right now, will that draw the Supreme Court into the political realm despite what the justices do?
1: I think that the Supreme Court has always been political in some way. But I do think that the Trump administration and the Republican Senate behavior take away any fake leaf that suggested the Supreme Court was somehow independent of politics. Of course, the Republicans invented this rule in 2016 that you could not confirm a justice during an election year and have promptly abandoned that rule while we are in the midst of an ongoing election. And so I think that their behavior and their about faces should lead people to view the court as a more political institution than some people did at the end of this past term.
0: President Trump said he's going to appoint a woman, and all the women on his list are conservatives. Most of them are appointees of his on the federal bench. Does it matter which conservative
1: woman he appoints? Is it, is it all the same, or are there degrees? I think that all of the nominees he's currently considering for this position are going to vote and would likely vote in substantially similar ways on the major issues that we are thinking about when we are thinking, well, what will the effect of this replacing Justice Ginsburg be? Whether it is contraception, whether it is abortion, whether it is bullying rights, whether it is the legitimacy of the administrative state, whether it is a host of other things, the president's possible nominees are all likely to vote in these same ways. Um, now there are probably differences between them in the kind of opinions they will write or on certain less ideologically salient questions, but I think that in the main they will largely vote the same way on these major issues that are, you know, having such a prominent role in the confirmation process.
0: Thanks, Leah. That's Leah Littman, a professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, we'll talk to one of Justice Ginsburg's former clerks. My next guest is Toby Hightens, the Solicitor General of the State of Virginia. He was a clerk for Justice Ginsburg. Let's just start with a, a broad question. What was Justice Ginsburg like?
2: <laughs> Surprisingly hard question because she was very I say complicated. She was incredibly smart. She was incredibly hardworking. She was incredibly kind, and she was she was a bit odd in a great way, but in a way that you definitely took some getting used to. She she spoke very softly and very slowly, and as a person who has a habit of speaking very quickly, that required some adjustment from my perspective. But she was just un, like I said. I mean, brilliant, incredibly hardworking, incredibly kind, incredibly generous, an all-around great person.
0: So you say she
2: was a bit odd, but in a good way. What do you mean? Sort of. I think a lot of things that people have have mentioned about her, despite having a huge personality and a huge footprint on the law and on broader culture, uh, she spoke extremely softly. Her voice was often extremely soft and and extremely deliberately, despite being a a great lover of the opera uh, and a person who obviously was, was an amazing dresser and spent a bunch of time her own look. She was, so far as I can tell, pretty much completely indifferent to how the people who worked for her looked or dressed. One of my sort of overall senses is that RBG divided the world very sharply into things that she cared about and things that she did not care about. And the things that she cared about, she cared about intensely and profoundly. And the things that she didn't, like what her law clerks wore to work or what hours they kept, was something that she just did not care about at all.
0: Did she always have those long pauses before she spoke?
2: I wouldn't say always. I, one of the greatest pieces of advice I got before I interviewed with her um, was from a, an incredible recommender and, and later dear friend. I can almost quote it more than like 20 years later. It was pauses in conversation that most people would find uncomfortably long that justice did not find uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think it was true. I think she she was someone who gave a tremendous amount of thought to what people were saying to her and what she was going to say back. And I think it was important to her to take the time to process what she had heard and and make sure that she said what she wanted to say. I mean another thing that was sort of legendarily true about her both in writing and in speaking is that she believed in saying as as little as you needed to say. Not not saying anything, but but to not be excessive in the amount of things that you said. She was a big believer in short opinions. She was a big believer in concise statement. So I think she often gave quite a bit of thought of exactly what to say. And I think she, she took the time to do that in a way that, again, I, I don't think that she found it uh, awkward. And so, but it, did, it definitely took some getting used to. The, the same person I mentioned earlier gave me uh, this incredible piece of advice about, you know, they, they said, like, at some point, there will be a pause in the conversation. And you may have the urge to fill that space. You need to resist that <laughs> urge. Specifically, resist the urge to—I remember the quote—shatter nervously because it's really easy to do, especially when you're, you know, when I interviewed with her, I was 25. Gosh, uh, I think I was 25 years old, and and she had been someone that I—I mean, she wasn't nearly as famous then as she became in the later years of her life, but she was still pretty darn famous, and she was a a hero to mine back then. And I was having this sort of ridiculous out-of-body experience in the justice's office talking to her. And so, not surprisingly, you're pretty nervous. Uh, and so when you're nervous, at least if you're me, you talk faster and you have fewer pauses. And they're like, that's going to be going on. And you really, really, really need to not do that. <laughs>
0: so. What was the atmosphere like in her chambers for the clerks? She was a hard worker. Did you guys have to work extra hard? Did she take your views into consideration?
2: Yeah, absolutely. She was She was definitely a hard worker. One of the things I remember learning, though, is that she worked very distinctive hours. The justice was a night owl uh, and I am not. And so, you know, she would she would come in late and she would leave late. I think one of the things that was so amazing about her and it's, it's all the more striking to me, you know, with the benefit of years of hindsight, is that she really didn't have a whole lot of rules. You know, some federal judges have lots and lots and lots of rules about what their law clerks need to do or what they need to wear or when they need to be in the office. I think in RBG's uh, perspective, none of that particularly mattered as long as they were available when she needed them and as long as they did the work that she needed them to do. She sort of, for a person who was herself a very fastidious dresser, who obviously took great consideration into into what she wore, she was, as far as I could tell, almost completely indifferent to what her law clerks wore. (laughs) And had had no chamber's rules about that other than when, of course, if you were in the courtroom, you were required to be wearing appropriate attire to go into the courtroom. But uh, other than that, she really just did not care what her law clerks wore to work. And by and large, she didn't care when her law clerks did their work or whether they or where they did their work, um, as long as she could reach you when she wanted to. Um, I mean, like I said, she herself kept somewhat unusual hours. Uh, and so as a result, I think she didn't necessarily have very strong views about the hours uh, that people would keep. You know, I I had the tremendous privilege of of clerking for the justice when her husband, Marty, was still alive. Um, And so a lot of the chambers socializing, of which there was a fair amount, either included Marty as a direct participant or as an indirect participant. So whenever it was someone's birthday, for example, uh, the law clerks, the justices, the the secretaries, the chambers aide, aides, we would all go into her office and sit around a table and drink tea and eat a cake that marty had made um you know because marty was a legendarily great and generous cook and so i probably had six different cakes cooked by marty ginsburg sitting around the justice's table in her office um one of the incredibly special things they also had us over to dinner in their apartment in the Watergate, and marty cooked you know everything and it was everything you've ever heard about martin ginsburg the the amazing chef so they were incredibly incredibly kind and incredibly warm and incredibly welcoming they and and everything people have said, you know, I only saw a, a period of it, but everything I've ever heard people say about their marriage was absolutely true to what I saw. They had just incredible relationship that has been uh, a real inspiration, I know, for me and for lots of other people about um, both how they obviously, obviously cared about each other. You know, the justice was the justice was often a pretty reserved person. Um, but she was not that way around Marty. I mean, she she came alive um, in, in terms of demeanor, in terms of expression, in terms of just visible happiness whenever Marty was around. It was just it was incredible.
0: She seems, as you said, reserved, and yet she was obviously her husband and Justice Scalia, whom she was great friends with, were these gregarious types? Was it opposites attracting, or did she have that sense of humor that came out not in public, but when? You know, you
2: were in private. I think it might be a little bit of those two. She she definitely did tell a good good joke from time to time. So that was certainly true. I also do think, you know, I really always have thought that one of the Rosetta Stones about her personality was the statement she made a number of times uh, that if she had been able to be anything in the world she would have liked, she would want to be a great opera diva. Um, You know, I think she was herself perhaps a a fairly reserved and, and maybe even shy person who nonetheless had a tremendous affection for larger-than-life things and larger-than-life personalities. And I think, you know, I, I think I think that the line you draw between Marty's personality and Justice Scalia's personality is a good one. I think she, she herself was a fairly quiet, reserved person who, who very clearly loved big personalities. I, I, I think she said this a number of times about Justice Scalia, that one of the reasons that they were such good friends is that he made her laugh. Um, and she appreciated someone who made her laugh.
0: I've been reading the different justices' remarks, and so many of them on both sides of the aisle said that she was a dear friend. And Justice Souter said, I loved her to pieces. You know, you don't think of Justice Souter saying something like that. What was her role? Was she a unifier at the court?
2: You know, I, I don't have a great sense of that, um, but I do. I, that was my sense as well. Um, my understanding uh, is that the late Chief Justice Rehnquist was also extremely extraordinarily fond of her um, uh, before his death. And so, uh, you know, it's a great question. I I do think, I think she was a person who worked very hard and took her job and her craft incredibly seriously. And I think people tend to respect that. Um, I think that she, you know, she also wrote, it's interesting what what happened later in her career when she became most famous for some, you know, incredibly powerful and important dissents. She was somebody who, especially early in her career, was very reticent about writing separate opinions just for herself. In fact, she wrote an entire Law Review article about it, about the fact that she did not tend to write a lot of concurrences and did not write, tend to write a lot of solo defense just for her. I think she had a very team-based view of the law and of her job, um, and I think she worked very hard um, you know, again, she, she was legendarily great friends with Justice Scalia, but I would say even in her most biting and powerful and impassioned defense, she was very careful in terms of, I would say, tone um, and language that she used. Uh, she, was, she could be very, very critical of positions, but I guess in my experience with her, both knowing her and but also through her opinions, she was, I think, often always very careful to criticize positions, not people. And I think people probably noticed that about her um, and appreciated that about her. So, I, you know, it's a, it's a great question. It is striking to read some of those uh, statements. And obviously, whenever uh, a justice passes, there, there are statements like that, or, or retires, there are statements like that. that I, and, you know, obviously, she was very special to me. So I may be inclined to think this, but there, there did seem to be something different about some of these. And I, I completely agree. Justice Souter's was. It's, I think it's the shortest one, but it is just incredibly poignant, especially coming from, you know, a person who himself is often viewed as quite reticent.
0: She had so many clerks and a lot of them kept in
2: touch with her. Did you keep in touch with her uh, over the years? I, I kept in touch with her some, um, you know, probably less than some more than others, maybe is the right answer, I guess. Um, I kept in touch with her somewhat, you know, I, every significant job uh, change I made after working with her. I, I believe I had a conversation with the justice about, um, both giving her a heads up that someone might actually call her for a reference, although I'm not sure anyone actually did. (laughs) Um, and just to let her know, um, you know, I think the last of those conversations I had with her was shortly before, uh, I got my current job, um, with the attorney general of Virginia and she was, she was very, very supportive and very excited. Um, so I, I, certainly touched base with her that way. Um, you know, we saw her usually mostly at, at reunions, but occasionally other than that. So, so I would say some, more than some, less than others. <laughs> and you said
0: earlier that she she liked larger-than-life figures. And it seems like she really embraced the notorious RBG idea. And, you know, she had celebrities coming to her chambers. And it seems like
2: she really liked it. That, that's my sense, too. I, I certainly never asked her directly about it, but everything I'd ever seen suggests that she got a bit of a kick out of it. I mean, I, I imagine it must have been a very strange experience to be in your, I guess I don't remember exactly when it started, but she was, she was either in her late seventies or her eighties when she suddenly became a pop culture phenomenon, which I imagine must have been somewhat of a strange experience. For her. Um, but she did certainly seem to enjoy it.
0: So when you look back, is there an anecdote or a comment that what stands out to you when you think of her?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because Again, she was somebody that I knew and admired before I ever met her or ever had any reason to believe that I would meet her. And and one of the things that's that's odd for me is to sort of is to is to relate those two things, right? The the sort of larger than life figure, this incredible figure in American legal history, on the one hand, and someone who was my boss for a year. And it's it's a, it's an odd sort of duality of those of those two things. Um, that's really tough, you know. I, I one of my one of my favorite stories uh, about her, which encapsulates a few things about her, including her sense of humor, um, was so I had scheduled my interview with her, and between the time that we scheduled the interview and the date the interview was supposed to happen, the Supreme Court decided Bush versus Gore, which effectively ended the presidential election of 2000, and you know that was a big a big thing. And I, in a panic, I called all of my recommenders about what they thought this meant for my interview. (laughs) And they were unanimous about two things. They were unanimous that the justice would not cancel or postpone the interview because Justice Ginsburg, as we saw throughout her life again and again and again, stuck to her schedule, um, no matter what, whether something huge in the world or a personal tragedy. She, She kept to her schedule. They were unanimous that she would do that. And they were unanimous that she would definitely not bring up Bush versus Gore during my interview. So they were right about the first part. Uh, but when I walked into her office, I believe the first words she said to me were, have you read our recent decisions? Which I can only imagine with the benefit of hindsight, you know, at, at the time I had this amazing thought. I I briefly thought if I, you mean the Orissa decision that you issued last week, but right, I, I can only conclude with the benefit of hindsight that was, that was a joke on her part. Um, but at the time, I, I think I sort of panicked and freaked out and gave the, you know, answer that I prepared, but, but I learned in that moment and it was an important, you know, I think that's, it's a fun anecdote because it captures for me, um, her absolute commitment to keeping her schedule and her promises, which is why everyone was sure she would never postpone the interview. Um, The fact that she does enjoy, that she did have a sense of humor uh, and enjoyed tweaking people's expectations, that she didn't even ask me, had I read Bush versus Gore? She referred to it as the recent decision, (laughs) um, which I can only conclude was was an exercise of her mischievous sense of humor, uh, and that she's very hard to predict sometimes, because I had spoken to a bunch of her former clerks, and they were all convinced that she wouldn't bring it up.
0: It's hard to come up with one thing. She's so larger than life.
2: Yeah, she really was. You know, it was, I imagine for a lot of us who clerked for her before she became the pop culture icon. It, it's very, it was a sort of very strange experience. And again, I'm sure it was 10 times stranger for her um, and for those who are closer to her than us. But the experience of having somebody that you worked for become really, 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 I mean, all, all Supreme Court justices are obviously very high profile people. But she became, again, a, a cultural phenomenon, um, uh, which, which is a very interesting an interesting second, you know, second career life, or I guess in her case, what's really amazing about her is that she had, I guess, conservatively three or four full careers, right, of, of accomplishments that even if a person had never done anything else in their professional career would be, you know, incredible. Being the first female professor at two different law schools, that would be an incredible career accomplishment. Um, being the, the architect of the legal fight against sex-based discrimination in law, um, that would be an incredible accomplishment. Being a renowned judge in the D.C. Circuit, you know, and then being being a justice who was, you know, for a while uh, a very well-respected justice and then a justice who in the later years of her life became a celebrity in addition to being um, this incredibly powerful voice. That's, really, that's like three or four careers in one person's life.
0: Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Toby. That's Toby Hightens, the Solicitor General for the state of Virginia. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.